When I'm working with clients to help them get pregnant, inevitably, most of them end up getting pregnant, which is a great thing. But since PCOS increases the risks for gestational diabetes and low milk supply, I end up fielding a lot of questions around lactation which I am definitely not an expert at. So I brought on my friend and colleague, Megan McMillan, who is not only a dietitian but also a certified lactation consultant to sort out what's fact and what's fiction about breastfeeding issues and when you might wanna consider reaching out for help. Megan holds a master's degree in human nutrition and is also an international board-certified lactation consultant, or IBCLC. Megan spent five years working clinically in the NICU, pediatric floor, and women's units. In 2019, she started her own business, Mama and Sweet Pea Nutrition, a private nutrition and lactation practice and consulting company that specializes in prenatal, postpartum, and infant care. The mother to two kids with food allergies, helping lactating dyads struggling with food allergies or intolerances is her passion. Megan lives with her husband and two children outside of Chicago. In her spare time, she enjoys lifting weights, baking, and having Alexa dance parties with her kids in the kitchen. I actually learned some things that I didn't know before in this episode, so I really hope that you find it helpful too. Let's get started. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome, Megan. I am so glad you're here to talk with me today. Why don't you tell the audience a little about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Melissa, for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so my name is Megan McMillan. I am both a registered dietitian and an international board certified lactation consultant, which um, you will often see abbreviated as IBCLC. Um, so I own a private practice. I'm located um, outside of Chicago, Illinois. And in my private practice, I work mostly with um, breastfeeding people, um, lactating people who are struggling to kind of figure out what's going on um, 
if their baby is having, you know, food intolerances, possible food allergies, things like that. So usually um, families will come to me when they suspect there is some sort of intolerance or food allergy happening in their um, breastfed baby. Um, that's usually, that's kind of the main focus of my practice. I definitely do see a wide variety of all issues related to lactation um, and being a dietitian as well. Obviously, we really do focus a lot on um, nutrition for lactation, postpartum nutrition, and then moving into, you know, starting solids and, and important um, nutrition and food related issues with babies and toddlers too. I'm also the mom um, to two little kiddos who happen to have food allergies as well. And I also have two older um, stepkids who are now a senior in high school and a freshman in college. Wow. I see that a whole crew there. A whole crew. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, one thing that I've noticed about your practice is that it really spans that, that whole early motherhood period from prenatal through lactation and postpartum and beyond to feeding little ones with picky eating or food allergies. So it's kind of like a one-stop shop for new parents um, where once they kind of get started with you, they can continue on that journey. Has your practice always included all of those areas or did it kind of evolve and expand as you were working with clients? Oh, that's a really good question. And I, I love actually how you described it as a one-stop shop because that is kind of how I intended it to be. Um, when I first started my private practice, I actually had not yet um, gained the IBCLC certification. So I was really focusing more on the nutrition aspect of those stages of motherhood. But yes, definitely, you know, prenatal nutrition. Um, even I even did some, you know, um, uh, consulting with um, those that were trying to conceive or, or potentially, you know, infertility issues um, through the whole spectrum, through pregnancy and then into the postpartum period and yes, um, into infanthood. But that that kind of was the way I designed my practice. And then as I obtained the um, IBCLC credential, I added in, um, you know, lactation specific services. But definitely my clients, I usually do see them kind of, it's what it's really turned into is kind of that first year postpartum or the first year of a baby's life. So really through that spectrum of, you know, usually breastfeeding, although certainly plenty of my clients are also formula feeding as well, um, or doing a combination of both and then into starting solids. And so we, we do both, you know, the, it's both addressing mom or the parent as well as baby and their needs too. Yeah. So you mentioned you're an IBCLC and I know that's kind of an intense certification process, um, but there are other lactation uh, certifications and credentials. Can you give kind of a brief overview of what the difference is between some of the more popular ones? Sure. Yeah. So there are, you're right. There are actually like way more than I actually ever realized <laughs> in terms of um, lactation, like certificates or credentials. There's, I think at least that I know of probably 10 or 12 different ones aside from the IVCLC. And, you know, I really, we kind of used to have this thing where we would say the IVCLC is the gold standard in lactation. And 
I've kind of moved away personally from saying that because I really do feel like there is a place for all of these credentials when it comes to helping lactating families, um, but they are not the same. And so I think that's important for people to understand, like you said, what the difference is between them. Um, so they usually differ in the type of training that the person receives. So just again, to give a couple examples, there's, there's a CLC certification, which is Certified Lactation Counselor. There is um, a CBS, which is a Certified Breastfeeding Specialist. Um, there's all sorts of different um, uh, peer counselor uh, certifications and even just, you know, being like a peer-to-peer um, -peer support person. So for instance, like La Leche League or Breastfeeding USA, um, you know, they have like peer counselor positions. Um, there's a few other that I'm not thinking of at the moment. Oh, there's a CLEC, which I believe is Certified Lactation educator and counselor. Don't hold me to that. That might not be right. <laughs> um, and then yes, there is the IBCLC. So the IBCLC is probably the most well-recognized. Um, and the biggest difference, like I said, between all of these is the amount of training, like really like hands-on training that's required. Um, most of those other ones, aside from the IBCLC, do not require really any type of hands-on um, lactation training. Um, and then they, they all differ in the education that's required. So again, most of them don't require um, any type of health science courses or a health science background. Um, and then there's a wide variety in the actual amount of lactation education that's required. Some of them are, it's just like a week-long course that you can take. Um, and so then the, the biggest difference really though between them all is the scope of practice. So the IBCLC has the widest um, scope of practice. Um, you know, some of them really only allow for the provision of like lactation education, where you can't really, again, you're not really supposed to be doing like any hands-on stuff. You can't really do any um, lactation-related diagnoses. Um, it's really more just general education. So again, the IBCLC has the widest scope of practice. We're really, um, to get the IBCLC, you need, you need health course um, uh, health science courses. It doesn't have to be a degree, but you do need to take some health science courses. Then you have to have 90 hours specific of lactation education. And then depending kind of on like which route you decide to take, because there's a couple of different options to get the IBCLC, but it's on average requires about 500 um, um, like hands-on uh, clinical training. Sometimes you can get away with a little bit less. I actually, the route I took required a thousand hours of hands-on training. And then of yeah. course you have to pass the exam. Yeah. That's similar to the journey to become an RD. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I remember and, we, we only had, um, I had one week of rotation in peds, uh, during my internship. And I just remember we did have, um, you know, sort of a, a workshop on breastfeeding. And I just uh, remember being in complete panic over the whole thing <laughs> because, you know, like when you're, when you're working with an adult, um, there's a, a lot wider margin for error. Uh, but when you're working with such a tiny little person, um, the amounts of things are, are so very tiny and it's really just, terrifying. <laughs> it, it, I can completely understand that. It really is almost like, 
I don't want to say another language, but it is really almost like that. I know I remember taking interns when I was working clinically in the hospital, I covered in the NICU and I remember getting interns and they, they had that like sticker shock, right? Like of the small numbers, like the really small volumes of feeds, the really small weights you're dealing with, obviously a newborn baby or even especially a preemie baby is the numbers are much different than, than the adult population. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's, it is an adjustment if that wasn't something you got a lot of education on or, you know, didn't have, I almost call it a privilege to spend time during your dietetic intern um, in that setting because not everybody does. And I personally, when I was a um, intern, I really fought to get NICU um, experience to get like some time in the NICU as an intern because most places didn't want to do it anymore. They just felt like it was not, I don't know, the right environment to be teaching, I suppose, but, um, it was really important to me. So I really pushed for it. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, I do feel very fortunate that I had a week in the NICU and, uh, and the peds floor. And, uh, I also got to do a WIC rotation, which I feel like, you know, really helped, uh, give me a broader view of the kind of things that go on, um, in, pregnancy and early childhood. Um, I do remember one time in the NICU, you know, they wheeled in a blue baby while we were there. And Mm -hmm. it was just like, (laughs) I mean, it was so impressive. Just, it was just all hands on deck and they, they got that baby breathing and everybody cried and clapped. And it was just, I, I left the hospital that day, just so shaken, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting place to work. <laughs> That's for sure. The NICU. I mean, you really do see like some pretty high highs and some pretty low lows. And uh, it, it, I will tell you, as a dietitian, it was probably my most like rewarding clinical setting. And I'm really glad I I ended up there and finished. I don't want to say finished, but like that's the bulk of my clinical career was in the NICU, which is what I always wanted. And I I feel really fortunate to have had such a great experience there. Um, yeah, it, prior, you learn a lot just about people in general. <laughs> yeah, prior to that, my only real experience with that was my um, my nephews are identical twins, so they were in the NICU um, down at Mass General when they were born, and so I remember, you know, the little NG tubes, the tiny little NG tubes, and just how tiny mm-hmm. they were, you know. Yeah. Um, and then the whole thing with you know, trying to find the right formula because one of them ended up having reflux and it just, it took for, and then my sister having to fight for insurance coverage of the formula and all the, all the things. There's just so much to consider with feeding infants. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it really does open your eyes to kind of, um, you know, a lot of the things that aren't necessarily the best about our systems in terms yeah. of, yeah, just healthcare and childcare and, you know, um, medical leave from work and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. It really does open your eyes to a lot of the, the problems and the, the flaws that we have in some of these systems. Yeah. So what are some of the more common issues that can come up during lactation? Well, I mean, there is honestly so many issues. (laughs) And I I don't mean that to like scare people away from it, but there are, I mean, there really are so many different issues that could possibly arise. Um, And, and honestly, usually it's really just that the, 
they are requiring a little bit more reassurance or like a really simple solution. So again, I don't want to frighten anybody. It's usually a fairly quick fix for the most part. Um, but the most common things obviously um, are, are issues with latch. So just, and especially right in the beginning after baby's born, um, having concerns about the latch, whether they don't feel like the baby is latching correctly or mom is having a lot of pain um, or even damage to the nipples from the latch. Um, that's probably the most common reason um, people reach out to an IBCLC. Um, after that, I would say it's concerns about their supply, whether they're concerned they actually have an oversupply or undersupply, you know, or they're just concerned that the baby isn't getting enough milk in general. Um, those are probably the two most common reasons um, people seek the assistance of an IBCLC. But again, the spectrum is so wide. I mean, again, in my practice, I see a lot of families that are concerned about like digestive issues or potential food intolerances. Um, you know, there's definitely always concerns about growth. Is the baby growing appropriately? Um, then there's, you know, there's pumping and bottle feeding and going back to work. And as the baby gets older, then there's, you know, concerns about the baby getting teeth and biting and, um, you know, there's sleep issues that get intertwined into all of this. And then of course, starting solids and how do you balance starting solids with, with breastfeeding? And then, you know, at some point there, there comes the conversation of weaning and, and that's another great reason to seek out, um, lactation help because here you are, you've just figured out how to do this all successfully. And then it's comes time where you've, you know, when you have to stop and then you're like, okay, I figured out how to do it. Now, how do I, now, how do I stop doing it? So, um, we really do see like this wide spectrum of, of issues. And then again, you know, there's, um, things like mastitis or, um, uh, clogged ducts. I mean, there's just so many different options, um, or reasons why people would seek the help of an IBCLC, but I would say in general, the most common are probably, you know, latch concerns and supply concerns. That's so funny because it's like, it seems like it's the most natural thing in the world and it should just be like, oh, just stick baby on the nipple and everything will be fine. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's similar to fertility issues. There's just so many places where things could possibly go wrong um, that, you know, you end up seeing a really wide range of things in the clinic. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it is, you know, we do kind of, I think, I think a lot of people do think that breastfeeding will just come naturally and that it's easy and that, you know, this is just what we do. And this, you know, there's that whole thing like, this is what your body's made to do. And again, we know that that's not necessarily always the case. It's definitely not easy. For, I don't think it's easy for anybody. I, you know, I think it's easier for some people versus others, but I think that the, a lot of times that's just chance. Um, I don't think it's has anything to do with, well, this person, you know, just did it better or, or has better nipples or this baby's smarter. Or, I think it's just chance, but um, it's definitely, it's a, it's a skill. And a lot of times it's a new skill for both mom and the baby. So you've got two people trying to learn a new skill together and, you know, it can be a stressful situation, especially when you think about, you know, if you are exclusively breastfeeding it does feel like a lot of pressure because here you are, you're responsible for keeping this baby fed. Um, so it, you know, it, it can, there's definitely a learning curve. Absolutely. Which is why I always tell people to seek help like early, as soon as you have any concerns or any doubts or any, you know, you're questioning what's going on, definitely reach out because 
even if it is just a matter of somebody telling you, no, this is totally, this is normal. This is supposed to happen. You're doing great. Baby is fine. You know, sometimes people just need that reassurance because it's new to them. Yeah. I mean, I think there's just so much lack of support for mothers in general, um, Mm -hmm. in our society. I know, you know, the, the past two years have really illustrated that. Um, and I know you personally, you know, working from home with two of your own littles have been impacted by Mm -hmm. changes and just, you know, the additional pressures put on moms. Um, so, you know, you're kind of saying about how, how it's new to both of them. Would it possibly get easier for the second time if, if you, um, you know, already breastfed one child or do sometimes new things crop up with more children? Yeah. So definitely new things can crop up, but I do think that the second one is easier in regards to kind of knowing what to expect. Mm -hmm. So I I feel like after you've gone through it the first time, you kind of have a a, somewhat of a better idea of, you know, what's quote unquote normal, or again, like what, what, what are some basic expectations of what this experience should be like? Um, But definitely new things can creep up. You know, I, I personally, my first experience was relatively uneventful. Like I actually did have a fairly, what I would consider easy, uneventful breastfeeding experience with my first. Um, My son threw me for a loop. Absolutely. But, you know, I was smart enough to know like, hey, this is different and this doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I was not an IBCLC yet at the time. I was smart enough to know. And when I say smart enough, I mean, like, because I, I, I was somewhat educated and I had already been through this again, but like, I just, there was some things that were happening with him where I was like, oh, this is, this is different. This doesn't seem right. I don't think this is supposed to be happening. I'm going to seek some assistance. Um, so, you know, it definitely, each, each breastfeeding relationship is definitely, um, it has the potential to be different from the next or from the previous, but in general, I do feel like you have a better idea once you've done it once. Yeah. So you're like less worried about the small stuff. I mean, as, as it is in general with a second child, you know, there's all (laughs) all the jokes about it and, you know, third child, there's no pictures of, or any, you know, it's just like, you're way less stressed about the whole experience by that point. Definitely. Yes. Mm -hmm. So one question that I get asked all the time, um, you know, because mostly when I'm working with people who have PCOS, it's because they are trying to get pregnant, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. and we sort of work on restoring their periods and optimizing their fertility, and then they get pregnant. (laughs) Um, And then after the pregnancy, that's where questions start to come up around PCOS and low supply. Um, is this, is this something that first of all is, is legit? Like, is there evidence that there is a lower or a potential for a lower supply in PCOS? There is, um, there is, there is some evidence that PCOS can cause a lower supply of milk. Um, it obviously there isn't, we, you know, we, we don't have like a hundred percent direct 
cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But there does seem to be some correlation and it's, you know, it's likely related to the um, hormone imbalances that present themselves Mm -hmm. in PCOS. Um, You know, one of the ones being um, insulin resistance. So insulin resistance on its own is a potential cause for um, a low milk supply. Um, and, and one of the reasons is because what they've found, and there, there is definitely research to, to support this, is that um, insulin resistance can cause um, improper development of the breast tissue during puberty. So if, if somebody is insulin resistant during puberty, so, you know, a young um, teenager that has PCOS or has insulin resistance for other reasons, you know, that perhaps they're type two diabetic, um, this can cause uh, the breast tissue to develop differently um, cause it causes hypoplasia. Um, And so a lot of times what we would see is um, there's like a wide, a wider space between the two breasts um, a lot of times the breasts are asymmetrical. Um, they have more of like a tubular shape, but so they're kind of longer versus rounder. Um, and then disproportionately large areolas. So again, this doesn't happen every single time. And it's actually not even like 50% of the time. The numbers are fairly low. Um, I think the most recent statistic I saw was like five to 10% um, of people with PCOS will have both this like hypoplasia of the breasts and uh, low milk supply. Um, so, you know, the, the insulin resistance is one key component to that. And I know that's something in your practice that you definitely will work on and address with your PCOS clients. So um, a lot of times we do, if we know um, a client, like a lactating client has insulin resistance, we definitely want to make sure that her blood sugars are um, you know, as balanced as can possibly be. A lot of times, if there is also a concern for low milk supply, um, metformin will, is prescribed for that specific reason. Oh, interesting. You taught mm-hmm. me something new. I had never heard that this was a possibility, this breast tissue hypoplasia with PCOS, but it makes sense. And I actually wonder, you know, how much of a role high androgens play into that, you know, uh, sort of different breast development during puberty as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, they they're the research I was um, that I saw recently. I'm not I can't remember how new this research is. The study I was looking at, but I was looking at it recently. Um, they think that there's insulin receptors in the breast tissue, and mm-hmm. so it, when if you, when you have insulin resistance, obviously those receptors are not working properly, and that's leading to this. Um, hypoplasia, but it really only seems to affect, you know, when during puberty, when the breasts are being developed. Wow. I had no idea. So is that really the main reason for low supply that could happen in PCOS? Um, I don't know if we know it's the main reason, but it's definitely one of the factors. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as you mentioned, the, the high, um, the high level of androgens um, and and also excess estrogen both can play a role. Um, you know, high levels of estrogen can can kind of not necessarily stop lactation. Well, if they're really high levels of estrogen, it can stop lactation. But um, higher than normal levels of estrogen um, block the release of prolactin, which is the milk making hormone. 
Um, you know, this is one of the reasons why when, if women are um, breastfeeding and they're going back on birth control, we recommend a non-estrogen um, uh, oral contraceptive because the estrogen in, in birth control can dry up your milk supply. Um, so this is, you know, it's another one of the hormones that's at play with PCOS that can potentially cause low supply um, in yeah, lactation. Interesting. I definitely, I don't see high estrogen in every mm. person with PCOS. It's probably, mm-hmm. you know, I would say less than half have high estrogen, but it it's always a possibility because that excess testosterone can aromatize to estrogen, but you know, a good, good percentage of people with PCOS have normal or low estrogen evens, but you know, it's just another testament to the fact that PCOS is really a syndrome. And so it's a vast collection of symptoms and it, a wide array of presentations that can happen. And, and it's not, you know, what's happening for you might be different than what's happening for someone else with PCOS, even though it's technically the same condition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's one of the things in my, um, when I'm working with clients in my like intake forms and my health history forms, it's, it is something that I specifically ask about, you know, I ask about fertility issues, but I definitely ask about PCOS specifically. Um, because, you know, I, I, one of the things I want to know then if they check yes, is then we do talk about, you know, did you experience these normal changes in your breasts during puberty? Did you experience normal changes in your breasts during um, pregnancy? Um, And we talk about, you know, blood sugars and things like that. So it is definitely something that IBCLCs are aware of and should be asking about regularly, especially if there is concern for low milk supply. Um, You know, it's definitely something I would go back to, um, if I have a mom who's concerned, concerned about her supply and I find out she has PCOS, it's, it's something we would address to, again, to make sure that her hormones are balanced. Um, her blood sugar is regulated. Um, but you're right. It obviously doesn't affect every single person. And I have had plenty of clients with a history of PCOS that have perfectly healthy milk supplies and it's never an issue. Yeah, no, I've, I've definitely seen a span as well. Um, So you mentioned that one of the things that, you know, might be tried in that situation is to sort of proactively treat with metformin. Are there other things that, you know, people who find themselves in this circumstance where they, they do have PCOS and they are having a low supply, are there other things they could work on or add or do differently? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, again, once, if there's blood sugar issues, those are the first to adjust. So whether that is through diet or through metformin, um, or both, um, that, that is one route. Um, you know, it's hard when we have other factors in play, right? If you have a a condition that affects your hormones, it's, you can't just tell somebody to, well, just, you know, nurse more frequently or just pump more frequently because Mm -hmm. that's not the way it works in these situations. You know, Typically, lactation is a, you know, a supply and demand kind of feedback loop. But when you have these other outside factors kind of working against you, 
where you possibly don't ever actually establish a good milk supply from the beginning, then that mm. advice doesn't work. And so, yes, a lot of times we will try other things like galactagogues, which are, you know, a, any type of substance that is thought to help um, increase milk supply. Um, you know, and there's a wide, there's a wide range of what those are. Sometimes it's just food. Sometimes it's herbs. Sometimes it is other medications. Um, it just kind of depends on the individual and their, you know, specific circumstances. Obviously, we look at all the other things that are happening in that person's life, including, you know, their other medical history, other medications they might be on, because you definitely don't want to, um, you know, prescribe something or recommend something that's contraindicated. But, um, you know, some of the more popular ones, um, fenugreek is a really popular herb for lactation, although I've seen very mixed results um, with my clients on it. Some some do really well and actually do see an increase in supply. In supply, others don't at all, and they actually um, fenugreek can cause some digestive issues for both mom and baby. So I, I don't recommend that as much. Um, moringa is another really popular one. Although again, really? with moringa, moringa, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I, you're probably aware Moringa can lower blood sugar levels. So we have to be careful with that one as well. Um, if they're already on a medication like metformin, yeah. yeah, it can be tricky. Um, you know, there's several other herbs like dandelion root, uh, blessed thistle. Um, brewer's yeast is a really popular one in lactation. And it's a common ingredient in like lactation cookies or lactation smoothies. Um and then, you know, the, the, the popular foods that are typically recommended, like oatmeal. I mean, everybody, you know, I, I think almost every breastfeeding person I know has a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast. <laughs> um, you know, sweet potatoes. Um, there's a lot of talk about like coconut water and Gatorade, um, even like a dark beer like Guinness. So, you know, there's there's some truth to those, but it's not for the reasons we think. They're not like a magical food. Um, a lot of times it's either you needed that boost in calories or carbohydrates um, mm -hmm. and the B vitamins that are in them um, or things like when people are talking about, you know, Gatorade or um, coconut water or electrolyte, electrolyte tabs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, <clears throat> exactly. It's usually there was some sort of underlying level of dehydration or overhydration without proper balance of electrolytes. So it's, it's, they're not, you know, there's no like pill, like a miracle pill that will, or a miracle food that will just automatically boost your supply. Although, you know, in certain um, instances, they are worth pursuing. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are. 
in a restaurant, getting takeout at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, really interesting. Some of those, I'd heard of some of those, but some of them I definitely had not heard of. I think it's so interesting that, you know, first of all, that it makes sense that lactation is affected by hormone imbalances. And it also makes sense that ultimately balancing blood sugar is foundational for, you know, any hormone imbalance, but really almost any chronic condition or issue. Um, If you don't have blood sugar balance, that's like, you know, it's trying to fix something without having a a stable base. Um, So I think it's interesting that even sort of, despite all of those foods and herbs that you can add, ultimately it's those basics, you know? And I think it's, it's not super sexy, but it's like, (laughs) unfortunately, you know, sustainable and what works isn't always sexy. Right. Exactly. And, and lactation is really interesting from like a physiological sense because it is actually super complicated, right? I'm sure you've talked about how, you know, I mean, so many things have to align perfectly for conception to happen. We really don't ever talk about that. Like it's very, I mean, it's, it's, it really has well, to I like, talk about it all the time. Yeah, but. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like there's so much that actually has to line up perfectly for that to happen and for it to continue to happen, you know, for it to continue to grow and, and the baby to develop and, and for it to be um, sustained. And, and lactation really is kind of the same. I mean, if you give birth and you expel the placenta, your body will produce milk. Like that just happens. It's the drop in the hormones that happens with the expulsion of the placenta. And, but after that, it really is like, you know, it's it's this balance between like, do you have the proper hormones in place, but also like, are you doing all the little things to keep those in place? So it's, it is kind of, it's really interesting to me how it all, the way it kind of shifts from like a completely hormone driven process to then, you know, really supply and demand, but also like you need to have the foundation of the hormones in place. Otherwise none of those things will work. Yeah. And some people do it for years too. They just, you know, sustain Mm -hmm. it right on through the next kid and, you know, really spend a large portion of their adult life lactating. Yes. Yes. (laughs) amazing, isn't it? It's just, wow. Wow. Yeah, it's, it is. It really is interesting. Um, It's fascinating when it, yeah. I mean, the the whole idea, again, the concept of like your body being able to sustain another life, you know, again, through, you know, toddlerhood, really. um, And, and potentially through another pregnancy and, I mean, obviously you, there's other, you know, once your baby hits six months, you add in food and things like that, but it, it, it is really impressive. Like how long, even after weaning, like the body will still produce milk. Um, a lot of 
women don't realize that they, you know, they get freaked out that they, you know, weaned like four months earlier and they still, if they, you know, do a little breast compression, they can still get milk out. Um, that can potentially go on for a while after weaning. So the, you know, the human body is very fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And it can take a while for prolactin levels to drop, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It can. I yeah. mean, it's, it's similar to pregnancy hormones after a loss. It can take that HCG a while to kind of get back to baseline. Um, cause your, your body's kind of doing what it's doing at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And during lactation, I mean, prolactin levels stay fairly elevated and then you have kind of these little, you know, ups and downs with like, with like every feed really. Um, but overall during the whole time that you are lactating, your prolactin levels will remain elevated. Yeah. So you sort of mentioned that there are some nutrients that are, are important during breastfeeding. I think, you know, first of all, we should establish that breastfeeding is a time of a need for even higher calorie intake than pregnancy. Um, but what are some of the specific nutrients that are, are important during that time period? Yeah. So there's, I always like to distinguish between things that are important during lactation versus things that are versus nutrients that directly affect the composition of your breast milk. Cause there's, there is a distinction because there's things that are important for maternal intake. And then there are those specific nutrients that are really, um, affected in the breast milk by the maternal diet. So things in general that are important for the breastfeeding or lactating person are, um, uh, vitamin D, DHA, um, choline is really important. Um, the thyroid hormones or um, not harm, sorry, not the thyroid hormones, <laughs> the, the nutrients that support the thyroid hormones. Yeah. So selenium and iodine, those are um, really important during lactation. And actually those increase both um, selenium, selenium and iodine increase from pregnancy to lactation. Um, choline does as well. The, the RDA is mm-hmm. an increase. Um, so those are the main ones that I really, you know, focus on with my clients. And of those, um, DHA, vitamin D, and choline, maternal intake directly affects the amounts that are found in your breast milk. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if um, if a breastfeeding person has really high intakes of um, DHA because they eat fish regularly or they take a fish oil supplement their milk is going to have more DHA than somebody who doesn't eat fish at all. Um, the same goes for vitamin D and choline. So those ones really are directly affected by what you are eating. Yeah. And you mentioned there are some, are those the same ones that are specifically important for um, baby as well as for the breastfeeding person? Yes, those three specifically, the DHA, the vitamin D and the choline. And one of the reasons really is just because they're, they're going to get adequate amounts if mom is taking in adequate amounts. So they're completely dependent on 
your diet when it comes to those three nutrients. Other nutrients in the breast milk stay relatively stable um, regardless of what your diet looks like because it, what it will do is it'll actually pull from your stores. Um, um, so, you know, things like um, maternal iron intake does not affect the amount of iron that's found in your breast milk. Um, other things like, you know, vitamin C, the amount of vitamin C you take will not really change the amount of vitamin C that's found in your breast milk. So choline, vitamin D, and DHA are the three that do. And those three are really important for a baby, um, you know, especially a growing, developing baby. You know, DHA is very important for um, their brain development, the development of their eyes. Um, you know, vitamin D we know is really important for bones and teeth, but also, you know, there's a lot of evidence to support it's important for a lot of other things like the immune system, um, you know, and then choline also is really important for brain health and the development of the nervous system. And so there's just those three things really, you know, we have to make sure um, anybody that's breastfeeding or lactating is getting adequate amounts because the baby really is depending on it. Yeah, that makes total sense. I'm trying to think back to my life cycle nutrition class here. I do remember <laughs> the thing about, about breast milk being low in iron. And that's why it's so important that baby's first foods be high. And I do remember that part. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really, it's interesting because there's a reason why it's low in iron. Um, and it's not, it's not necessarily low it's low in iron, but it's really high in um, bioavailability and mm. um, it helps to protect against um, infection because a lot of infectious agents thrive on iron. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, there's a purpose to it being lower. Um, and, you know, there's, there's also this myth that's been perpetuated that there is no vitamin D in breast milk or that vitamin D doesn't pass through breast milk, which is just, it's, it doesn't physiologically make sense. Like everything passes through breast milk. Everything does. I mean, it varies in how much, depending on exactly what we're talking about, you know, whether we're talking about a vitamin or we're talking about alcohol or we're talking about a prescription drug, you know, but literally everything does pass through breast milk. And so vitamin D is just really dependent on how much the mom takes in. And so, you know, if you are deficient in vitamin D, you don't get enough sunshine, you don't really eat any foods that have vitamin D in them. If you don't take a vitamin D supplement, if you don't get enough vitamin D, your breast milk won't have enough vitamin D and vice versa. If you, you know, have good levels, you eat plenty of vitamin D rich foods, you, you know, get some sunshine um, on your skin and, you know, you're taking in adequate amounts of vitamin D, then your breast milk will have adequate amounts of vitamin D. So for those three nutrients, Totally get it. So the more you eat, the more your breast milk is going to have. What about some of those nutrients where your body prioritizes putting it in the breast milk? And so it's taking from your own stores, even if you're not getting enough. What are some of those nutrients? Is that like yeah, calcium? So- like, is that one of the ones where calcium will kind of your teeth will fall out kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So calcium is really the only one that we have a lot of evidence on, um, in lactation. I, I would assume that there's others related to that. Um, you know, perhaps like magnesium or, um, like vitamin 
K2, which we really know so little about at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but I would suspect that anything else that has to do with um, bone formation, bone density, um, probably does act similarly. But yes, calcium is one of those ones where um, your body is smart enough to know that you are feeding a baby um, and it will take what it needs from your body. So there is a lot of evidence that shows that um, maternal bone uh, density decreases during lactation. Um, and we do see some instances of higher, yes, like dental issues, um, higher instances of broken bones um, during breastfeeding. Um, the good news is, is that the research also shows that once you've weaned, it actually kind of all quickly reforms, which I don't fully understand, to be honest with you, um, but that is what the research shows. So again, it's fascinating what, what the human body does. I wonder if that's age dependent, like if you're 27 and you get pregnant and then finish breastfeeding, I wonder if that's different than if you're someone in your mid thirties where, you know, it's pretty next to impossible to develop new bone at that age. Yeah, I'm not sure, but that is, that is a really good point. I I'm, I would assume yes, that probably it gets more difficult as the older you are. Absolutely. But, you know, along those lines, it's kind of odd to me. I mean, I'm always fascinated that the, you know, the, the RDA for calcium during lactation doesn't change. Um, it doesn't change in pregnancy either. It's, it stays at a thousand milligrams, which is just, it's very interesting to me. I, I mean, I suppose, I suppose it probably doesn't matter to be honest with you. Like I said, in terms of milk, you know, the more calcium you take in, it won't affect the amount that's in your milk. But I guess I would think from the maternal benefits on yeah. a higher intake. Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned one of my favorite yeah. vitamins, K2. Um, mm -hmm. I've definitely had doctors not really understand what K2 is and what it does. Um, I always recommend K2 in combination with vitamin D, um, especially if we're doing doses above a thousand. Um, you know, and the reason for that is because if you take high dose vitamin D without taking the K and without having adequate magnesium supply, then your, your body's going to suck calcium out of your bones where it can float around and cause problems. So I always give K2 in combination with D, which when I'm giving it over a thousand, you know, I use, which is 99% of the time when I'm recommending D because someone's already deficient or they live in an area of the country where they're deficient. Um, and, and yeah, doctors don't really understand it. And I've, I've had doctors, especially OBGYNs, um, make my clients stop taking K2 during pregnancy because mm -hmm. they're just worried it's going to affect clotting. And it's like, well, it's not that kind of vitamin K, you know? Right. And I found, yes, there's, there definitely does seem to be a lot of misunderstanding about what it is. And I've found, I mean, close to zero literature on vitamin K2 and lactation at this point. Um, there really isn't anything out there at all. Um, so, but I'm, I'm with you. I usually do recommend it, um, in, in conjunction with vitamin D. Yeah. It would be interesting to see any research papers out of Japan, which is, you know, one of the few countries where enough K2 is consumed because of NATO. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I actually saw natto in my food co-op last week. I almost fell over. I have never seen it anywhere. (laughs) I didn't even know it was, yeah. There's a, like a really high end uh, Japanese restaurant in in Chicago that will have it on the menu every once in a while. Um, But yeah, otherwise, I mean, I would, I can't imagine ever actually seeing it anywhere in the States or let alone in like a co-op or a grocery store. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was really just kind of floored. Um, Maybe someone requested it. You know, we are a university town, so it's very possible that a professor Mm -hmm. or a student requested it. So I think this, you know, talking about nutrients, um, I know you sort of subscribe to some of the same ideas I do around that postpartum or fourth trimester period. And there's really just this societal pressure to bounce back after baby, um, you know, and, and lose the baby weight really fast. And, you know, you definitely will hear from people, oh, breastfeed, cause it'll help you lose weight fast. What are some of the risks of trying to lose weight quickly after birth? Well, yeah, I mean, it, the biggest risk I think is that you are not focusing on establishing your milk supply. Um, mm-hmm. It really does take time and um, proximity, meaning like mom and baby together, um, you know, a lot of the time. <laughs> and and that doesn't mean you can't obviously take time for yourself. You, you certainly can um, and you should. But in terms of really trying to focus on anything other than just having time together with baby, getting to know your new baby, making sure your milk supply is well established, it's really challenging to, to you know, prioritize anything else. Um, you know, so trying to prioritize, you know, going to the gym or starting some sort of diet or, or tracking calories or, or anything like that. I think you're really, you're missing the mark on enjoying that time together and really, you know, getting that fourth trimester snuggly, cozy baby like feelings. Um, and I think it, it does, it does sometimes I've seen it in practice, uh, you know, where again, there's not enough time with mom and baby together. Um, and that can definitely impact milk supply. Um, which is, it's hard. It's really hard. You know, obviously you want time alone and, and you want that, um, you know, you have goals, um, health goals of your own. And, you know, maybe you're the type of person that just really enjoys going to the gym or it's really good for your mental health and that sort of thing, which is great. Um, but you do have to be realistic um, in in regards to, you know, if successful breastfeeding or, you know, exclusive breastfeeding is a goal of yours, how, how does that work when you are taking significant time away? Um, it can be a real challenge to find a balance between the two. And so, you know, a lot of times what I recommend is, you know, walks together if you can, like if you're your weather is decent at the time, or if you know live in a safe enough neighborhood where you can get outside and go for a walk, like baby wearing or pushing the baby in a stroller, um, going for walks outside together is great. If there's any type of, you know, gentle exercise that again you can do at home with baby, again I really am a big proponent of baby wearing because it keeps you guys close and you kind of have that skin to skin type of um, effect. You know, if there's like some gentle postpartum yoga you can do. Um, or have baby, you know, laying on the floor next to you while you're doing that, 
I think those are the types of ways you can kind of get the boat, the best of both worlds, you know, where you don't have to feel like you're completely sacrificing everything. Um, but you're also, you know, cognizant of the fact that this time really does, does matter um, when it comes to, you know, long-term breastfeeding goals. Yeah. I, d- I know I don't have to talk to you about all the systemic issues um, yes. <laughs> in the U.S. around maternal paid leave and paternal paid leave and family leave and just support in general. Um, but it's it's also, you know, a, a big cultural difference in America from some other countries and other cultures where you know, it really is prioritized uh, to have that seclusion time with baby, um, mm-hmm. you know, and we really kind of miss the mark, um, which I guess, you know, isn't surprising considering what the rest of our healthcare system is like, <laughs> you know? Right. So okay. I feel like, you know, we have, there's definitely this pressure, right? It, where to get your body back, to get back to being productive, to, you know, get back to work, to make sure the house is clean and, you know, to be social and let everybody come over and see the baby. And there's, there is a lot of societal pressure to do all of that. And, you know, I think it's also great if somebody really can do that and wants to do that, but my job as, as a dietitian and, and as a, you know, IBCLC is to really make sure that they have the information they need so that they can make the choices that are right for them. And definitely part of that information I provide is like, let's be realistic about what this time is supposed to be and how you spend these first couple of weeks and months after having a baby. Um, How is that going to affect the rest of your postpartum experience? You know, how is that going to affect your milk supply or your, you know, your, your long-term breastfeeding goals? Um, because it does. And that, and that, that's the reality. Um, again, after, you know, the first week or so of postpartum where lactation is driven by hormones, it, it switches to that supply and demand. And so if you're missing feedings, um, or missing milk removals, because, you know, you're, you're trying to be productive, you know, you're going to the grocery store or, you know, friends stop by or, Um, you know, you decide to go to the gym and you don't pump beforehand, you know, things like that. So if you're missing out on those milk removals, whether again, it's feeding directly at the the breast or the chest or pumping, it does affect things long, long long-term. And I, I, I have to be honest with my clients about that. Um, but if there's a way for them to find a balance and to make it work, then I support them in that as well. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, you have to be the one to advocate for them. And I I do think that, you know, the last couple of years have helped new parents establish better boundaries around who's allowed to visit and when just because of, you know, fears of, of contagion. But, um, you know, in certain ways, that's been nice. I know, you know, people who've had extended maternity leaves, for example, when they weren't expecting them um, or being able to work from home when they didn't expect it in that early infancy stage. And it's not been a bad thing, you know, from every aspect for sure. Oh, a hundred percent. We have definitely seen 
increased um, breastfeeding rates and breastfeeding duration during the last two years with the ability to work from home and not be separated from baby. Absolutely. And, and to not have to pump either, because a lot of, um, you know, unfortunately, pumping is not really very convenient. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. just, it, it's not, it takes time out of your work day. Um, you know, it's a pain to lug everything with you and bring it all home and wash bottles. And, you know, I give an incredible amount of credit to, um, to those who either choose to exclusively pump or they, you know, they, that's just the, the journey that ends up being their, their story. Or, you know, if you are um, pumping while you're away at work, or have you, but pumping is not easy and it's not fun and it's not convenient. And so I think the fact that we've had this opportunity to keep, you know, moms and babies or parents and babies together for longer, it really has, um, at least in my practice. And I know from talking with other lactation consultants, we're definitely seeing uh, more breastfeeding and, and longer breastfeeding rates. That's great. So good to hear that. Um, so while we're on the topic of pumping, one of the other issues that comes up with my PCOS clients, you know, they do often have gestational diabetes. The rates are, are higher in PCOS. And so sometimes, or they have other pregnancy complications, um, and so sometimes baby does have to stay in the NICU for a while. Um, do you have any tips for those who, who are pumping and are really, you know, doing their best to make sure that baby's getting breast milk, um, you know, but, but struggling with some of these sort of supply issues and disrupted schedules and all of that, that comes with having a baby who's in the hospital while you've been sent home. Yeah, it's, it is such a tough situation. And again, I mean, I have not experienced it personally, but I witnessed it so many times when I was working in the NICU and it really is a tough situation. Um, you know, there's a couple of things that I usually will recommend from the get-go. So even like prior to baby being born and, you know, things that happen pretty immediately after birth, when you, when you either know baby is going to have to be in the NICU or there's, you know, there's a, a higher um, potential for that happening. So one of the things that you could do is um, collect your colostrum prior to birth. Um, this is something that I do recommend for women who do have gestational diabetes. Um, and usually you only have to do it for like a week or so before, you know, maybe starting at like 36 weeks, if again, if baby has not been born by this time, um, you can um, do some hand expression and collect some colostrum in a syringe and freeze that and then bring that with you to the hospital um, so that baby can get um, some colostrum right after birth, as opposed to um, potentially having low blood sugars and having to go to the NICU for that reason alone, um, and then getting an IV. Um, and then you're separated. So collecting your colostrum is a really good option um, to do ahead of time. If again, if you have suspicion or if there's the potential for baby being born with uh, low blood sugars. Um, another thing is, again, if it's not an emergent you know, situation, um, right after baby is born to at least request some skin to skin if possible. Again, if it's not emergent where baby has to be uh, taken to the NICU right away, um, to get some skin to skin time to allow baby to try to latch, um, in that first hour or so. Um, and then, um, 
you know, if you are, if you are separated immediately or, or once you are separated to begin pumping, um, right away, um, you know, the pump is going to replace the baby in this situation. And so the sooner you can establish, um, that, that supply or the demand for your supply via a pump, um, that's what you should do. Um, and you know, if there's donor milk available, I would suggest using donor milk. I always uh, recommend my clients ask their hospital what the donor milk policy is. You know, if they participate in donor milk, if it's available in the NICU, um, that definitely would be something I would recommend. But it is really hard being separated. And, um, you know, if you don't have access to a hospital grade pump, that would be something I would recommend because the hospital grade pumps are the most efficient. So you're going to get the most bang for your buck when it comes to mm -hmm. pumping. Um, you are going to have to, especially in those first couple of weeks, I would say, you know, the first two, three, four weeks after having baby, if you're still separated, um, you're probably going to be pumping every two hours in those situations. Um, including overnight, you know, it might get to a point where if your milk is really well established, you can start cutting back on that. And I would cut back on the overnight ones to start with because sleep is really important. Um, it, sleep is important for a good milk supply as well. Um, so, but giving yourself a lot of grace in those situations because it's really challenging and, um, you know, it, doing the best you can and um, with the tools and the, the circumstances that you have at that moment. But um, again, taking every opportunity you can, um, during your visits, if you're allowed to get some skin to skin or do kangaroo care, um, all of those things are going to help. Oh, that's great. I mean, I remember, first of all, like when, when the twins were in mass general, just like having to drive, you know, to Boston and park in Boston is a nightmare, like mm -hmm. on a good day. And just, you know, it's, it's hard. And, you know, I think it's important that you do give yourself grace, um, that you're, you know, doing the things that you can do, um, makes a lot of yeah. sense. It's the NICU is a really hard environment. I mean, there's, I, I know parents, uh, feel like there's so much that is out of their control in those situations. And so, you know, I think pumping for a lot of moms becomes something they feel like they really have control over, which is great. Um, um, but it also can become kind of a detriment too, if it becomes almost, um, I don't want to say obsessive, but really, you know, if it doesn't, if it's not going the way you thought it would, um, <laughs> mm. to, to accept that and, um, you know, just know that you acknowledge that you're doing the best you can in the, the circumstances that you are in, you know, it's again, kind of going back to the way our systems are set up and our society is set up. There was a video that went viral not too long ago about a woman talking about how she had to go back to work while her baby was still in the NICU uh. so that she could be home. Um, she could actually take her, her FMLA leave when the baby was discharged. And I, I remember seeing that so much when I worked in the NICU where women would go back to work while their baby was still in the NICU. That way they could take their leave when the baby was discharged. And I just could never imagine that feeling, you know, of having to be at work or be productive while, you know, separated from your baby like that. So it's, That's it really brutal. is a challenging environment. 
yeah, it's, it is brutal. I, I, it was really rough. Um, you know, I mean, it was rough for me to just hear women tell those stories. I can't imagine being in that, that actual, um, situation. So again, just really giving yourself a lot of grace and knowing that you're doing the best you can. And, you know, that is a great time to reach out for lactation support. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, hospitals that have NICUs will have some sort of, uh, like a mother's milk support group or a, you know, a NICU pumping support group. And I would strongly recommend taking advantage of those as well. Yeah, those are great tips. Um, do you have any sort of last thoughts on quick and easy, sustainable kind of things that those who are new to the breastfeeding journey and parenthood in general um, could kind of take away from this episode? Well, <laughs> I mean, you um, kind of said you kind of said a lot of them already. It's really just kind of give yourself grace, focus on yes. you know, nourishing yourself and sleeping and all those yes. basics. <laughs> a lot of grace, giving yourself a lot, a lot of grace, and you know, it, again, only worrying about the things that you can control because. If there's a lot of curveballs that get thrown your way. And just when you think like you've got things figured out and things are going smoothly, it it will change on you. You know, you again with breastfeeding, you get to this point where like, okay, we figured this out. We're in a good routine. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, now you've got teeth and you're biting me. What am I gonna do? Or, you know, okay, now I'm supposed to feed you solid foods, but like when do I do that? And do I do we do a bottle first or do we feed you first? Like, and then what happens with sleep? And I mean, there's just so much that, you know, I think again, a lot of grace and just accepting the things that you can and, and letting, letting go of control of the things you can't control and enjoying it, you know, cause there is for all the ups and downs and the heartaches that come with, <laughs> that come with that first year. Um, and, and, and look, kind of learning each other, there is so much joy in it too. And it really is like a beautiful time and to enjoy your baby, um, enjoy this new role. Um, I think that's really important too. Yes. And reach out early if you, you know, even if you're just unsure if something's normal or there's not, there's tons of resources available for you to support you. So uh, don't hesitate before reaching out to even just ask if you need help or not, I think is kind of the, the key takeaway. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yes. So why don't you tell the audience where they can find you? Sure. I am on social media. Um, on Instagram, my handle is at the lactation dietitian. It's the dot lactation dot dietitian. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, more so than any other platform. So that's probably the best way to find me. Um, they can also email me. It's Megan, M-E-G-H-A-N at mama and sweet pea nutrition.com. Um, and I'm also on Facebook at mama and sweet pea nutrition. Um, but I'm most active on Instagram. So cute. I always think of your daughter as Sweet Pea because I know that used to be your your name on Instagram as well. Yes, it did. It did. And it yes, it was it was named after her because that was my nickname for her. And I honestly, she's seven now. And I 
I still call her sweet pea sometimes, but not as much. And that's kind of sad. I feel like that was a, a moment in time. Oh. My dad, <laughs> my dad will still to this day call me bear. Um, you know, which, which was mortifying in college um, when he would call me there, uh, but he's still been known to do it on occasion. So yeah, it, they never die. Those yeah. nicknames never die. <laughs> well, no. well, thank you so much for joining me for this. I've definitely learned a lot. I feel like there were things I had no idea about. And I'm sure for, for my audience who is in this place where they're starting to think about breastfeeding or, you know, they're, they're struggling and they're not sure where to turn. This is going to be immensely helpful. So thank you so much for this. Um, and we'll see everyone next week. Thank you, Megan. Thanks, Melissa. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced.